Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul. Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Rainbow Soul Network Lake Radio. Okay, it is Tuesday, September 22nd, and it's 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Boys, I got a show for you. We're going to talk about cholera as just a sample vaccine-preventable disease. And we're also going to talk about chickenpox and measles, and I think some look at some vaccine studies done by the industry itself. Now I know a lot of people oppose the vaccines um, because they feel that uh, there's dangerous stuff in the needles, and the vaccines cause autism. And we really get into it. I'm one of those uh, 30 mile high type people. In other words, let's just step back, take a look. See what the industry says. See what their research shows. Let's just take their word for it. And so uh, what prompted me to do this show, with as many as you know, I'm a doctor feeds. I get all the latest breakthroughs, you know, in medicine. And this headline caught my eye. It says if two doses of cholera vaccine are good, one must be better. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, if two is good and one is better, Maybe zero is best. Yeah, yeah. So the latest trial research shows that one dose of vaccine is better than two doses in epidemics. And so I am today going to trace for you the infectious path of cholera and draw some parallels to the uh, Ebola epidemic and other diseases for which uh, vaccines are advocated or proposed. And as always, think happens. What I start with is this headline that I got in my uh, mailbox. This is also, I think, a demonstration of the kind of research that your doctor is expected to base his clinical decisions on. This is some pretty mind-bending stuff, so don't feel inadequate or whatever if you don't quite follow it. And uh, definitely, if you're in the chat room, you know, Type in some questions if I lose you, or if you're on the line there, just uh, click your question button and we'll answer those questions uh, about three-fourths of the way through the program. Call in number is 914-338-0695. Okay, here we go. All right, so open my email and see this headline, Cholera Vaccine Reduction to Single Dose May Save Lives. I'm like, holy schmoly, isn't that something? From the industry itself. And so they're saying here that the vaccine campaigns that use a single dose of oral cholera may be able to prevent more deaths than the standard two-dose vaccine, according to a modeling study. Now, they slipped up that one right by me. 
And so I saw a study on, whoa, do some research. And so such a strategy may be especially important when vaccine supplies are limited or when an outbreak is characterized by complex logistics. So you've got the vaccine supplies, but you can't get them into every single person. So then what you do is just give one shot to everybody instead of two shots. And so today we have a rapidly growing cholera epidemic and swift action pays dividends. And so the research is suggesting, didn't say research, it's a result. This is tricky, word is result. Suggests that providing a less protective single dose vaccine to more people could have larger public health benefits than providing the recommended two dose schedule to fewer people. Oh, okay, interesting. Of course, it kind of begs the question with two doses ever necessary. <laughs> so, the investigators estimate that a single dose vaccine must be half as effective as two doses for a fixed amount of vaccine to avert, that means prevent, the same number of cases when administered at the beginning of the epidemic. Now, again, this is a very important term, cases. Cases means the number of people infected. The question is, is it going to prevent anyone from dying? So they didn't say that. And so the when the doctors are presented with this study, what's as important as what's said, of course, is what's not said. Okay, so investigators calculate a single dose is 44% as effective, uh, anywhere from minus 27, which means less effective, to plus 76%, which means almost as effective, compared with the 77% effectiveness observed for two doses. So in other words, one dose is 76% effective, and two doses per 77% effective. And effective at what? Effective at preventing uh, cases. All right. So unfortunately, the effectiveness of a single dose and they are mixed. And the uncertainty confounds means clouds or makes doubtful the conclusions of the study and it highlights the need for further studies to evaluate the one dose campaign. Other factors that must be considered, of course, are access, it means can you get the vaccine, cost effectiveness, it means how much profit is in this, and public perceptions of vaccine effectiveness. It means can we talk people into this? And so growing body of evidence based on empirical and computational studies. All right. Okay, this is tricky. What's empirical? Well, empirical means we're just kind of looking out there and kind of making a more or less guess. Computational means we kind of add up studies that happened in the past. And these provide the basis for effective strategies for use in outbreaks. And they're presenting a novel, that means new, framework for weighing public health utility of the same dose campaigns in light of current and future estimates of the effectiveness of this regimen. Well, this got me thinking. This makes no sense. We have a vaccine, right? The vaccine prevents a disease, gotcha. And so if you give one dose of vaccine, it's more effective than two doses of vaccine. So I said, you know what? This makes so little sense. I'm going to look into it. And so when they throw crazy stuff like this at doctors, and they do it a lot, they count on nobody taking a look at this. And a doctor actively engaged in the practice of medicine gets so much stuff thrown at him that if he starts questioning it, he immediately develops gridlock in his brain because there's so much of this stuff coming in all the time. But I don't have that limitation. So I said to myself, where did this study come from? What was defined as a case? What was survival? So here we go. And we're going to go take a look the actual research study. And this is uh, published by PLOS, P-L-O-S Medicine, August 25th, pretty recent, 2015. The impact of a one-dose versus two-dose oral cholera vaccine regimen in outbreak settings, a modeling study. It means it didn't examine a single patient to do this study, not one. Right. 
From 2013, they say, the background, the stockpile of oral polio vaccine, polio vaccine was created for use in outbreak response. Okay, I got it. But vaccine availability remains limited. Innovative strategies, that means me, are needed to maximize the health impact and minimize logistical barriers to using available vaccine. And we need to get all this vaccine into somebody's bond in some kind of way. All right, I got it. So you only ask under what conditions the use of one dose rather than international license two dose protocol may be helpful in both respects. All right. And so the first sentence tells the whole story. Using mathematical models, we determine the minimum relative single dose efficacy. So they use mathematical models. They did not examine a single patient by way of reaching this conclusion. Interesting. And so we've got a lot of uh, blah, 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 fancy big words here, but bottom line, not a single person evaluates no information uncovered. And so it says, conclusion, reactive vaccination campaigns, I mean, starting a vaccination campaign once disease breaks out, may prevent more cases and deaths than a standard two-dose campaign when vaccine supplies are limited. So they uh, basically performed a study without a study. This got a bunch of pieces of paper, Read them, yeah, let's apply some mathematical manipulations here and we'll reach a conclusion. Now, they use color transmission models to determine the minimum relative single dose effectively. So then it got to, my, I got to thinking, color, I mean, that's scary. That's really scary. So I wonder how bad is color really? In other words, if you get infected with color, what are your chances? What are your chances of dying? And, uh, you know, how, how, does this, uh, how does this whole thing play out? And then I said, well, let me go to the reliable people, you know, the ones with all the answers. Uh, that'd be the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I figured, if somebody would know, they would know. So I went there. And of course, by this time, I'm really curious, like, what exactly is cholera? So cholera is an acute and sudden diarrheal illness caused by infection of the intestine with the bacterium Vibrio cholerae. So in other words, if you have sudden diarrhea infection not caused by Vibrio cholera, it's not cholera, but it seems to me it's still diarrhea. All right. So 5 million cases and over 100,000 deaths each year around the world. Infection is often mild or without symptoms. So wait a minute. So why do I want to prevent something that's mild and without symptoms? Okay, so now I'm really curious. Mild and without symptoms, but can sometimes be severe. Sometimes. And approximately one in 10 infected persons will have severe disease characterized by water diarrhea, got that, vomiting, got that, blood cramps, got that. So it's still have 10% of people who are infected have the uh, symptoms, diarrhea, vomiting, and cramps. This is sounding, for those of you who don't remember, a lot like Ebola. All right, okay. And in people, rapid loss of body fluids leads to dehydration and shock. Without treatment, death can occur within hours. No words, doesn't always. All right, so how does a person get cholera? Now, that's worth knowing. A person can get cholera by drinking water or eating food contaminated with the cholera bacterium. In other words, this is the parallel with the fruit bats in the Ebola epidemic. Okay. So, in other words, in an epidemic, the source of contamination is usually the feces of an infected person that contaminates water or food. In other words, it's not person-to-person contact. If a person gets diarrhea, they poop in some water, someone else drinks this water. So you don't get this, cannot get this person-to-person contact. This is a very important point. Therefore, the disease is not likely to spread directly from one person to another. 
casual contact with an infected person is not a risk of becoming ill. Very, very important. So what good is vaccination in a disease where there's no person-to-person spread? In other words, it's not contagious. So one person can't infect another person. So if you don't have person-to-person spread, then there's unlike not really any reason for a vaccine. So my vaccinating myself has no potential to stop an epidemic. Why? Because there's no person-to-person spread. Another term, impress your friends and confound your enemies, is common source outbreak. It means there's a common source, which is a pool of water that's contaminated, a pool of food that's contaminated. So there can be no rationale for vaccination in a case where there's no person-to-person spread. All right. Interesting. So I got some symptoms, and the question I got. So now let's get down to this. So common source outbreaks, infected food, infected water. So far, we're kind of really paralleling Ebola here. Well, I want to know who dies of Ebola and how do they die? You know, how does this, uh, you know, how does this go down, you know? What's, what's, uh, what's the big deal? Well, it turns out what they say, and this is very important, cholera can be simply and successfully treated by immediate that means like right now, not an hour from now, not a day from now, a week from now, like right now, immediate. The replacement of the fluid and salt loss through diarrhea. Patients can be treated with oral rehydration solution, a prepackaged mixture of sugar and salt to be mixed with water and drunk in large amounts. This solution is used throughout the world to treat diarrhea. Severe cases also require intravenous fluid replacement with prompt rehydration. Get this, fewer than 1% of cholera patients die. Whoa, wait a minute. Fewer than 1%. Less than 1% of cholera patients. So back up, what's a cholera patient? A cholera patient is that 10% that have severe symptoms for which they seek medical attention, right? For somebody who has no symptoms, not a cholera patient because they have no symptoms, they don't even mention it. A person with mild symptoms, maybe they have one loose stool, that's the end of it. That wouldn't be a cholera patient. So fewer than 1% out of the 10% die. I know right now I'm really straining the brain here, so what's uh, 1% of 10%? That would be like 1 in 1,000. So instead of 1 in 10, so 10 in 100, or 1 in 1,000 people die. That is a pretty low death rate, a very low death rate. Those of you who've been listening for a while, you know that I took the trouble of calculating the average death rate per year per American citizen. So it is actually eight per thousand. So your chances of dying in any given year, eight per thousand. And that's if you start the year perfectly healthy. Yes, a perfectly healthy person has a chance of eight in 1,000 of ending up the year in a casket or some other death situation. So what we have here then is a condition that without vaccines, because these people got cholera, without vaccines, we can expect a death rate somewhere more or less one in 1,000. You don't need medical intervention for that. We call this harmless. Yes, the word would be harmless. Now, um, the CDC.gov also goes on to talk about intervention. They say antibiotics shorten the course of the illness and diminish the severity of the illness 
that they are not as important as receiving rehydration. Persons who develop severe diarrhea and vomiting in countries where cholera occurs should seek medical attention promptly. Well, so let's pause. Let's pause. So if somebody gets medical treatment, it is called treatment, proper treatment, promptly, then their chances of dying are basically one in a thousand. All right. So now I'm curious. What is medical attention? What would be proper uh, treatment? Well, proper treatment would be a packaged rehydration formula purchased from some corporation or provided from some ostensibly friendly uh, international partner. What they're recommending is that rehydration centers be established throughout the country so when cholera strikes, people can come to these rehydration centers to get rehydrated and, of course, vaccinated. Now, having practiced medicine as a doctor and having treated rehydration or dehydration on many occasions, I can tell you that the rehydration formula that we doctors use is something called D5 half normal saline. This is called D5 half normal saline, and so that regular everyday people will not recognize it for the simplicity that it is, and they won't mind paying thousands of dollars for the intervention. But right now, I'm going to demystify this for you by telling you what D5 half normal saline is. D5, D stands for dextrose. Uh, put that in English, it's sugar. That's the D. So 5% sugar. 5% sugar is 50 grams of sugar per liter of water. So what's 50 grams of sugar? 50 grams of sugar, more or less, is a quarter cup. Well, for those of you who are precise, it would be three and a half tablespoons. So D5, half normal saline. Saline is a fancy word for salt. And so the percent of salt is half normal. Normal is more or less 1%. Half normal is half a percent. So that would be a teaspoon. So you take a liter of water, you add a quarter cup of sugar, half teaspoon of salt, stir it up, and you drink it. That's it. That is it. So if you have a home that has salt in it, raise your hand if you've got salt at home, you probably do, and sugar, Raise your hand if you have sugar. You might not have some sugar. Maybe you have some honey. Okay, you can substitute that. So you've got D, the sugar part, quarter cup, salt, one teaspoon, and water. Best water is distilled water for this application. You mix all this together and you drink it. And so all you need to do is disseminate this knowledge, information among people who are likely to be exposed to cholera. And when cholera strikes, they just mix it together and drink it immediately on the spot. They don't call for an ambulance and wait half an hour and poop out all their fluids and die. Uh, so there's none of this kind of victim rescue process going on. And treatment starts immediately. So to rehydrate a child that's somebody in the age of two, it probably will take maybe one or two liters, again, severe third world circumstance. And for an adult, it may take um, five liters or even more. And you just let the person drink, 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 drink as much as possible. Now, I gave you the medical solution. I told you what the doctors do. So what are you telling people to do? It's like, uh, you know, regular everyday people. What they're telling them is to mix two tablespoons of sugar, is half the amount the doctors use, and a half teaspoon of salt, half the amount the doctors use, and mix it with a liter of water. So obviously, you're going to get uh, results that uh, may not be as effective. Nope. Either way, it's better than it's better. better than doing nothing. And better than doing what people are trained to do in a case of vomiting and diarrhea, which is to make phone calls and sit with your hands crossed until uh, a savior shows up. And 
And so this is the solution. The solution is salt, sugar, and water. And even if you're traveling in a third world country, uh, you can simply boil the available water and use that. And so the homemade solution, they say, is the internet, rehydrate.org. And these people are working in third world countries and trying to stem this effect of this problem. It's adequate in most cases. If the diarrhea is severe, ask your chemist, whatever that is, and here I am in the middle of nowhere, no electricity, filth, dirt, sewage everywhere, and I'm going to have a chemist. I guess anything's possible. For a special package of oral rehydration salts, follow the instructions on the packet carefully. Drink sips of the oral rehydration solution every five minutes until urination becomes normal. And that, by the way, is a way to measure if you're hydrated. You have to start making urine. And it's normal to urinate four or five times a day, by the way. However, if the person's dehydrated, you do want to give them the rehydration formula until they start urinating. That's important. So adults and large children should drink at least three quarts or three liters until they are well. And if you're vomiting, they say continue to try to drink the oral dehydration solution. Your body will retain some of the fluids and salts you need, even though you are vomiting. Now, for those of you listening, you can take a more advanced strategy, which is hey, put it in the enema bag and let it flow in the bottom end. There you go. So to take sips of liquids slowly and chilling the oral rehydration solution may help. The stuff tastes nasty, I can tell you. It just doesn't taste good. It gives you that queasy, nausea feeling. So even if you're in good health, take a sip of the stuff you like eating them. So chilling it uh, can be helpful, but again, you're in the tropics, right? No electricity, it's hot, sewage flowing in the streets, it's coming that collar. Anyway, you probably aren't going to have a lot of refrigeration. <laughs> so, someone with sense of severe dehydration needs to go to an emergency room or other healthcare facility to get IV fluids directly into the veins through a needle. Again, you can use an enema bag and you can get going um, pouring in those fluids. So during or after treatment of dehydration, whatever is causing the diarrhea should also be treated. That's another question. So what can you do to treat this? It just so happens that in my travels, I happen to encounter um, the descendant of an overseer. And so this uh, person was a descendant of an individual who was the overseer of a slave colony in Africa. Yes. And uh, as you know, when you have slaves, the children are very valuable because they can grow into workers. And so the colony kind of replenishes itself. And so this person would treat the children who had vomiting and diarrhea with this solution. They would take a couple of sips, boom, vomiting and diarrhea would stop. Absolutely amazing. So what was the solution? One liter of water, a tablespoon of fennel seed, half teaspoon of cloves, and one crushed garlic. You boil it for five minutes, let it settle, and then you have pass it out to whoever's got vomiting and diarrhea. And I actually use this in my medical practice, and it helped me get patients out of the hospital earlier. That's when I first started using it. And then I just started using it instead of sending people to the hospital. Oh, you have vomiting and diarrhea? Here, sip this. And it actually worked without fail. Okay, so a vaccine is being recommended for a condition that is deadly in less than one in 1,000 cases, is not contagious person to person. And so just this research, this level of looking into things, it's clear to see that you really can't make a case for a cholera vaccine. You can make a case for separating your sewage water from your drinking water. You can make a case for washing your hands before you eat, but you cannot make a case for a vaccine because the illness itself is less deadly than just 
breathing. So I'll repeat that recipe, one tablespoon fennel seed, whole, half teaspoon clove, you can use powder or whole, and one crushed clove of garlic in one liter of water, and boil it for five minutes. So that is the recipe, and it works just beautifully. So let's take a look at other uh, vaccine preventable diseases. My favorite uh, lately is the measles. So, um, let's see. Let's take a look at measles. So, there's a measles outbreak in Disneyland. I said, oh, my God, there's a measles outbreak in Disney. Oh, how absolutely awful in California. I wonder what happened. Did, did somebody die? Well, guess what? Nobody died. Nobody died. Nobody died in the measles epidemic. And so the overall death rate among children aged 1 to 20 years old was 26 deaths per 100,000 children. The death rate for measles is 0.002 for each person who gets measles. This is a very small number. This is basically 1 in 500, maybe. But let's dig deeper. Let's take a look at this measles epidemic in California. And if you know, I'm here in uh, Panama, and I heard about it all the way, all the way from the U.S., I heard about it here in Panama. So we have 38.8 million people in California in 2014. Just need to have that number in the back of our heads here. And there are 59 cases of measles. And so of this 38.8 million people, there is at best one confirmed death per year of measles in the state of California. And so this is one in 38.8 million people. Who dies of measles? Get this. People who die of the measles are in their 30s and immunocompromised. In other words, no deaths at all in the younger age group. So vaccinating against something that has a 0% chance of happening. In other words, children who are healthy at the time of infection have a 0% chance of dying of the measles. Shocking, isn't it? Now, a lot of people, like I said, they get, uh, you know, what's in that shot? You know, the side effects are not safe. How about you're vaccinating against an imaginary scenario? How about you're vaccinating against something that is less deadly than just life itself, breathing? Now, the other shocking thing about uh, measles is if you look at uh, in CDC.gov, there's this whole autism thing. And so they figured that autism in white kids, not related to shots, autism in black kids, somehow, black kid gets a measles shot on time, means at 18 months, his chances of getting autism are three times that of, say, a white kid. Now, those of you who believe that there really is some kind of genetic racial difference, you might find that believable. I don't believe in all that racial difference stuff because in medical school, they are taught me a lot. Black people have this disease this way and white people have that disease that way. I scratch my head and say, doesn't add up. No, it does not make sense. But just observationally, you would see white people who fell into the disease category supposedly reserved for blacks and you find black people who fell into the disease category supposedly reserved for whites. So it's clear to me, um, scientifically, or certainly couldn't be validated by my observation. All right. 
So it's autism. So why is it affecting white kids differently from black kids? Well, segregation in the United States is now in 2015, just about the same as it was, or even worse, than before the civil rights movement. In other words, it's possible to simply ship more tainted vaccines to one group than to another group. That's one thing. Another possibility is you have one group, the blacks, who may be subject to more forced vaccinations and more repeat vaccinations say when records aren't found, and so they may actually be getting several more lethal shots. For example, uh, when I was in medical practice in the 90s, um, if a family, new family moved to town, mom didn't have the vaccine records, then the doctors were instructed to repeat all the vaccines all over again. So if you have a more mobile population, they're going to get more vaccines, and they may suffer more side effects. So back in 1983, year I graduated from medical school, one in 10,000 children was autistic. And so now it's one in 68. And so during the same time, there was zero deaths from measles. I should say in the past 10 years, zero deaths from measles. In other words, no case can be made that the epidemic outbreak in Disney endangered anyone's life because no one died of measles. Further, there was a person, no child died from measles, there was a person who did die from the measles who was over 30, but that person was not involved in a measles epidemic. So what does that mean? That means although the person had measles, although he died of measles, there is no record or evidence that that person contracted measles from another infected person. This is, this is huge. So in other words, if you look at the people in the United States who die of measles, not very many of them, they're over 30. They have weakened immune systems, weakened by prior disease or um, some immunocompromised, like taking steroids, for example. And they are not involved in the epidemic. So there's no evidence of person-to-person contact. So we have something called measles, for which people are being immunized against, which there is no death associated with a person-to-person contact. So person-to-person contact may exist, but it's not a factor in patient harm. It's not a factor in the death of people who die from measles. What would be reasonable is to figure out, okay, where did these people get measles from, the ones who are dying, if they didn't get it from another person? So if indeed vaccines are effective, which is presumed that they are, there's no epidemiological evidence that immunizing anyone aged 0 to 10 years of age will be beneficial since people who die are over 30. Maybe a compulsory vaccine program for people aged 25 and older would be more appropriate. But if you look at the epidemiology of the disease, there's no evidence person-to-person transfer plays any role in those who die from it, number one. And number two, the number of people dying in the under 30 population is zero. So even if it's vaccine were 100% effective, what we're vaccinating against doesn't exist in the population being vaccinated. And the shocking thing, of course, is that epidemics do not contribute to deaths. In every measles epidemic, there's been zero deaths. At least, like on the internet, that's what the government says. Deaths are isolated cases in older people with compromised immune systems and no evidence to person-to-person contact as a factor in those who die from measles. So it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So there's no evidence of deaths from measles related to the transmission phase of its existence. Those who die from measles, no documentation of where they caught it from or even exposure. So this totally contradicts the theory that one, immunization can prevent death, or two, 
that immunizing one individual can somehow prevent the spread to another individual. We don't have any evidence of that, any knowledge of that, because those who died from this affliction were not involved in a contagious situation. So, in medical school, I have to tell you about my goals and aspirations. So, in medical school, I wanted to be a journeyman doctor. I wanted to care for the ordinary, the routine. If I had no interest in any rare or obscure diseases because there were experts and I could refer that stuff. What I failed to realize is the real money, the big bucks, lies in pretending that something that is ordinary and routine is rare and obscure. So money lies in pretending that somebody actually has a chance of getting measles. And then we pretend that if they get the measles, oh my God, they could die. And then we pretend that they could spread it to someone else. And then we pretend that that spreading could actually harm the person who receives the measles, who catches it. And so all of these things, and so the area of vaccines then is a grand example of let's pretend. Let's pretend. And so let's go over the pretenses that, that we are being asked. What is it we're being asked to believe as a basis of these vaccines? So let's pretend the disease exists. An example of this is HIV AIDS. Excellent example. So let's pretend. So if HIV AIDS does exist, let's just say it did, it's transmitted by the virus, let's just say it does, then we would expect that this sexually transmitted disease, which is incurable, would constantly increase and increase and increase in its frequency in the population. This hasn't happened. Hasn't happened. So in the United States, we still have a situation where one in 250 people is infected with the virus or diagnosed with AIDS, however you want to take a look at that. We have people living within 20 years with this affliction. And so the disease has failed to behave in any of the ways that would be expected if what we are told about it is indeed the case. That it's contagious, that it's sexually transmitted, and that it's uh, in any way deadly. So first you have to pretend the disease exists. You have to pretend that you could get measles. You have to pretend that cholera can't be cured at home with salt, sugar, and water. You can pretend that the same mother who can mix a package of Kool-Aid with two liters of water and a cup of sugar can't figure out to put a quarter cup of sugar in one liter of water and a teaspoon of salt. This is pretend. You've got to pretend. We have to pretend the symptoms are caused by an unseen but living organism. That's a pretty big stretch because why? Well, we've got electron microscopes. We've got all kinds of laser uh, imaging and stuff. I mean, the medical profession can see things that aren't even there. And then to say, well, we can't find these organisms. And then we have to say, let's pretend immunity exists. Let's pretend that once you get infected with something, you develop antibodies, and then you don't get infected for the rest of your life. No evidence of this, none whatever. Um, people can get, for example, chickenpox, which is nothing more than herpes. So when you're three years old, there's chickenpox fresh all over your body. Then as your immune system gets stronger, it gets limited to uh, sexually transmitted disease, and then in the middle of your life, it may continue as a sexually transmitted disease. And then as you get older, the immune system weakens, and the same organism now causes shingles. And so they've got people so distracted that they're willing to believe that you have one vaccine for chickenpox, another vaccine for shingles, and I think they may even be developing a vaccine for sexually transmitted disease. Well, this is the same organism. So if immunity did indeed exist, then you would expect that a person who got chickenpox as a child would not get 
any of the other manifestations of herpes, but that's not the case. There is no immunity. Uh, another disease that they're trying to um, get uh, a vaccine against is the uh, sleeping disease in um, Africa. With this disease, uh, people go to Africa, they get this disease, they get very sick, they even go into a coma, they recover, uh, they go on with their life, and then they go back to the same um, area, it's malaria, this is disease malaria, they can get the same disease again. I had a patient in my practice who's a very wealthy guy, he's uh, African, and he would fly back and forth to, uh, to China and to Africa to pick up clothes and then sell them from his shop in Syracuse. And so I asked him about malaria once. You know, geez, that really exists? And what's the story? Said, oh, my God, Dr. Daniels, yes, it does. I said, wow, well, tell me about it. He said, oh, well, you know, I've had malaria about four times. I said, really, four times? And so there is no immunity to malaria. So if there is no immunity to a disease, there's no basis for a vaccine. None. Even the concept of immunity is preposterous. Because what is immunity? Immunity is the immune system defending you. So whenever the immune system is impaired, whether by lack of sleep, poor diet, dehydration, malnutrition, then the body becomes susceptible to that same disease. And then next, let's pretend. Let's pretend people are harmed by this illness. We can see that cholera is harmless, absolutely harmless. First of all, 90% of people don't even have enough symptoms to show up at the doctor's. And the 10% that do, only 1% of those die. And of that 10%, if they've never shown up at the doctor but had received salt, sugar, and water at home and therapy had not been delayed for 30 minutes to 10 hours, they will probably have had even better survival. So cholera, it makes no sense either to have a vaccine, number one, or two, a medical intervention program. You can simply have a lift clean water program and you can have a hobble, everyone keeps some sugar, salt, and jugs of clean water at home. So in case someone does appear to have cholera, you can give them a rehydration solution. And guess what? It wouldn't matter if it's cholera, Ebola, Shigella, Salmonella, wouldn't matter. The same rehydration solution works for all of them. And so let's pretend people are harmed. We have no evidence of harm by measles, no evidence of harm by cholera. And when I say harm, I'm talking about a death rate that exceeds the everyday death rate of 0.8%. So they're all going to die of something. So we can't talk about eternal life. But what we can talk about is as human beings, I just say we live about 100 years, yeah, 120, right? I'll be generous. And so there's a 0.8% per year chance of death just because you woke up today. So any illness that doesn't kill at least eight people per thousand is really not worth the attention of the medical community. Okay, so we're pretending people are harmed and actually not. I practiced medicine for 10 years in private practice, three years uh, on Indian reservations, three years as a resident, and four years in medical school and saw not one, not one death rate from any of the vaccine preventable diseases, not even one hospitalization from measles, mumps, rubella, pertussis, hepatitis B, chickenpox, and even many diseases, not one hospitalization or death 
in what amounts to more or less 20 years of being in the medical profession. And I didn't go to just any old medical school. I went to a tertiary care medical school with a super subspecialist that took care of all the difficult cases. And there was not one. Okay, so we can't make a case of people being harmed by any of these illnesses. Then we have to pretend the vaccine is effective. We have to pretend that everybody vaccinated would be protected from getting this disease. There are vaccines out there, most uh, notably the vaccine against meningococcal meningitis, they freely admit 75% effective. 75% effective. So if you had a 100% vaccine rate, you still wouldn't prevent all of the infections from this disease. So they're not even effective. This is, again, this is their own figures, not mine. This is their research. So we have to pretend, pretend the vaccine is effective. And then the final pretense is we have to pretend the vaccine would be helpful even if it were effective. And of course, none of these things are true. And so what we have then is a massive scheme of let's pretend. But the pretense doesn't stop this. These are all just a scientific let's pretend. And so since these let's pretend cannot be substantiated, cannot be enforced, and people's belief is just strained, um, people, even people who are indoctrinated don't have enough belief in these obviously false pretexts to submit to vaccination. So what do you do? Well, then it's a big let's pretend. Let's pretend that all of life's goodies can only be had if one submits to or takes a vaccine. So you can't attend school. One of life's goodies, you have to send your kid to be babysat by a perfect stranger for eight hours a day and indoctrinated. Or the kid can't go to amusement parks. Or you're now going to start preventing adults from getting on airplanes. Or you can't visit a foreign country. Or you can't get a job. Or in healthcare professions, as I already studied, you can't keep a job if you don't vaccinate. And pretty soon you won't be able to go shopping or receive a license of whatever type. So all of these things to enforce vaccination have nothing whatever to do with the deadliness of the disease or the effectiveness of the vaccine. These are simply political maneuvers to compel compliance. Now, notice that each one of these vaccine-dependent activities is a cultural status thing. None of them are essential to or even supportive of life. So the vaccine is a man-made concoction when the conditions are man-made conditions. None of the benefits of vaccine are intrinsic properties of the vaccine. And there's no evidence or even discussion of effectiveness. For example, a ladder helps the person reach higher places has intrinsic value and functionality. So the conditions set for vaccines are arbitrary and are independent of whether the vaccine is effective or not. These conditions are political. There's also a clue that the vaccine is no more than a cultural ritual, similar to primitive cultures, practices carving marks on a person's body to show their status or to release evil spirits. And so the modern advance over the primitive cultures, uh, carving marks or evoking evil spirits, is to convince people that a card indicating they are vaccinated represents them and that they lose their card, they have to be vaccinated again. If vaccines have anything more than ceremonial significance, one can easily detect their worth and their presence. They value life only in the belief of the recipient. The desire for the social privileges that are bestowed upon those who allow themselves or their children to be vaccinated. Very, very interesting. Again, you can sort this out without even digging into what's in those vaccines. Because actually, it doesn't matter. What does matter is your obedience, your compliance, and your willingness to submit. That's really all it's about. And so having a vaccine card, having up to date, is simply 
a symbolic representation of your willingness to submit, to be submissive, and to sacrifice your health or even your life um, for who knows what. In this case, whether sending your kids to school or having a particular job or whatever. So we are ready for questions. We've got about five minutes. Uh, I'm going to take a look through the calls in here for the chat room. Now, as always, these are only my opinions, nobody else's. And um, you know, you can check out the .gov websites on cholera, and there you go. Okay. All right. I'm looking for questions. What are you doing? People are so used to not having to think. It's easier to believe no one is trying to control them. <laughs> well, that's uh, one way of thinking of it. The way I think of it is people actually want to be controlled. They do not trust themselves to control their lives. They're looking for someone else to control their lives. Okay. <laughs> Are there any natural remedies to help someone get back to normal after a second concussion? For Christ's sake, don't have the third one. This is very, very important. Don't have a third concussion. A chance to humiliate yourself by wearing a helmet, do it. Don't get the third concussion. And that is the most important thing. There are some herbs and spices like rosemary, uh, which helps regenerate uh, brain and nerve tissue and make sure you have enough B12, which also regenerates and heals uh, nerve tissue. But the most important thing you can do is don't have that third concussion. (laughs) With cold and flu seasons on the way, what are some things we can do to prepare ourselves? Numero uno, do not get the flu shot. I used to get the flu shot uh, annually. I think I must have done it for three or four years just because of pressure. You know, now Dr. Daniels, we're having a flu shot drive. You know, you're a medical professional, get a flu shot, be a good example. Okay. One year, I thought I was pregnant. I said, oh, I'm pregnant. One thing I learned in medical school, it is absolutely not safe to ever vaccinate a pregnant woman. Obviously, this is out-of-date information, but that was the information I was working on. So I said, well, I'm skipping the flu shot. I skipped the flu shot that year, and I did not get the flu and did not get the flu ever since. The best thing you can do is don't get the flu shot. And, you know, as to how you can prepare yourself, I don't even want to indulge that hysteria. I'm just going to be real straight up with you. Don't get the flu shot. <laughs> okay. Oh, station identification. We have 90 seconds left. You're listening to Rainbow Soul Blake Radio Network, and this is Healing with Dr. Daniels. Definitely go visit VitalityCapsules.com. Check it out. Actually, Vitality Capsules will help you prepare for the flu season. They clean out all this junk so it doesn't accumulate and can't infect you. What's the name of the measles vaccine? Is the MMR the same? Yes. MMR stands for measles, mumps, and rubella. It's a combination shot. So that is a form of the measles vaccine. Okay. Pets are even a target, yes. And it's so heartbreaking to see the pets suffer. I tell anyone to do what you can to not vaccinate your pets because now they're getting cancer and all kinds of outrageous things. It's just awful. I, mean, I don't even have a pet, and I just I just think it's so uh, inhumane. Okay. Would any kind of sugar work for the hydration formula? Yes. It can be brown sugar, white sugar, turbinado, honey, any kind of sugar. Very important to just do it. Okay, that is it. We are at the end of today's show, and we will see you again next week. And as always, thank you.